Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 3rd, 2016. This is episode 1883 of the Survival Podcast, and it is a Monday. And on Mondays, we do listener feedback shows. That's where you send me email. Send that email to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. And uh, put TSPC in the subject line, then article for Jack's, you know, comment for Jack, question for Jack, whatever. And uh, it might get on a show like this. I do get hundreds of emails a day, so I can't tell you that they're all going to get on the air because it's not physically possible. But I will do my best to try to pull a wide variety every week. And when I get the same thing or same type of thing from a bunch of people in one week, I tend to really kind of pay attention to it and try to make sure it gets on the air. This is a show that's all about you because you guys are the ones writing the script for me about what you send into me. So what do we have this uh, Monday to talk about? One, Spain has no federal government for 290 plus days now, and they're kind of happier for it. Yep. Uh, looking for a short, productive, good-looking plant. So someone wants to know what they can grow because they have a wife that's not really in all this permaculture stuff, but you know wants ornamentals. What can you do? And then there needs to be in a place where it's short. What what fits that? I got a really simple answer on that one. Some teachers, by the way, are already being replaced. They just don't know it yet. They're they're training their replacements. A really interesting email about that. Another software engineer has written into me about automation and job elimination. Uh, I have a person asking for a question for finding the right fish for aquaculture in your climate. I got a new cool way to communicate about GPS locations with three little words. Yep, three little words. And a cop has written me with an inside view of something called civil asset forfeiture that I've mentioned on the air before. Um, his opinion of it is not good and uh, probably something that's better that we don't use his real name, which we tend to never do in situations like that. But you'll hear about that today. I have a simple way to kill off automated dialers to your cell phone, but I also have a possible gotcha with it. I'm not sure how that would work out, but I... Uh, I'm going to uh, to point out the gotcha, too, so that if you don't get yourself with it, it, it'll make sense when I get there. And I have a question for someone asking about, well, all of this uh, this technology replacing jobs, if it really does take away, let's say, half of all jobs, how can we then tell people, go support yourself if there's no jobs for them to do to support themselves? Interesting question, and I have an interesting take on it I think you'll enjoy. Anyway, before we get into all that, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1883 because the episode is 1883. We have three from Alex Shrug today. We have Krakatoa is no more. We have Give Me Your Tired, Your Poor, Your Huddled Masses. And we have B Buffalo Bill's Wild West Show. And in other news, 20 Mule Team Borax is born this year. They build, uh, the Harmony Borax Company builds a borax mill in Death Valley. The company will sponsor the TV show Death Valley Days, hosted by the future President Ronald Reagan, who will also star in several episodes. The cash register is patented this year. It's an anti-theft device to track employees with sticky fingers. And the verdict of not guilty due to insanity is changed to guilty but insane. Queen Victoria is sick of assassins being called not guilty. They are certainly trying to kill her. They were simply not responsible for their actions. This policy remains in effect until... 1964. Guilty but insane. Anyway, I am going to read for you Krakatoa is No More because it is one of the most uh, incredible things to happen in, in, in living history. 
Krakatoa is a volcanic island located at a strait between Sumatra and Java. Three volcanoes on the island have been inactive for 200 years. They must be extinct, right? As dawn approaches, the lighthouse keeper on Java's side of the strait feels a rumble under his feet. Fishermen on the Krakatoa, uh, on Krakatoa swim out to their boats and barely escape with their lives as ash and smoke billow into the sky. The forest bursts into flames. One of three volcanoes has erupted. Weeks later, a British freighter passes within 10 miles of, and when the world is plunged into darkness. At 11 p.m., a ladder of light rises to the heavens. By the next morning, the freighter is 30 miles away when the hammer drops. Eight cubic miles of rock that was once Krakatoa Island suddenly vaporizes. I'm going to read that again. Eight cubic miles of rock vaporizes. Think about how big a mile is. Just think about you know, the length of a mile, 5,280 feet, right? Okay. Now think about a square mile, pretty big. Okay. Now make it a cube. Well, eight of those go into evaporation. Um, ash and rock are thrown 17 miles straight up. Four explosions are heard. The third is the loudest sound ever recorded. 500 miles away in Singapore, the noise is so loud people cannot hear each other speak. 3,000 miles away, the explosion is mistaken as distant cannon fire. People on Java sheltering on a hill 155 feet high are swept away in the tsunami. Thousands upon thousands are dead or drowning. This is not the largest volcanic explosion that ever was, but it is well documented. Instruments are recording the shaking, and barometric pressure fluctuates several times as the atmosphere pressure wave bounces back and forth. Worldwide temperatures will drop 1.2 degrees and not return until normal until 1888. Uh, that would be five years. My take by Alex Shrug. FYI, they had virtually no warning before the initial eruption, and in May and 100 days later, the explosion occurred. Various com comparisons have been made to thousands of atomic bombs going off all at once, but frankly, atomic bombs could not have done that much damage in so short a time. One of Krakatoa's volcanoes is still active, and the island of Anka Krakatoa, child of Krakatoa, is rising from the ashes. Visiting the new island is considered extremely dangerous. Visiting the nearby islands is rated out at, out at 8.4 on the idiotic scale. Can it, can't, can it happen again? Scientists say yes, but not anytime soon. I'd say Iceland is the most likely site for the next such disaster, but who can really say? There have been many a scientist who has climbed into a volcano and suddenly realized he has guessed wrong and paid for it with his life. Um, one, I found a video of, I guess, somebody Alex would call an idiot climbing up the side of Anchor Krakatoa to get a video of it. It was for like a major network type of um, uh, documentary or something like that. And the volcanologist doesn't go up the hill with him. I put a link in the show notes so you can see that. Um, I I'll tell you, I don't know if it's Iceland. When I look at all of these massive volcanic uh, disasters, it always seems like the mountain was quiet, like it was extinct. And it doesn't necessarily go from extinct to explosion, but it always seems like there's this point where the volcano seems to have gone to sleep. And then it comes back, and sometimes very quickly or sometimes over a longer period of time, builds up to a big, giant explosion right and and i guess part of that could be that once it goes what looks like dormant the pressure has time to build again right where if it's constantly erupting i'm not going to say it's not going to go completely postal right but it maybe is less likely because it has a pressure release valve 
you think about what a volcano is, is a pressure release valve for the Earth. And if the valve gets clogged for a while, boom! And uh, we should never forget that one of the largest volcanoes in the world, a true supervolcano, lies underneath Yellowstone uh, National uh, Park. And that's why Yellowstone is the way that it is. And it erupted three times that we can tell from geology. Um, and the last time was about 600 and some odd thousand years ago. And does seem to have an even spacing between those eruptions, which frankly doesn't mean anything. But still interesting. And uh, it makes you wonder, because if that thing ever goes again, if that thing ever goes, um, five years of lower than normal temperatures, it'll be a joke. People would would beg for that to be the case. Um, as big as Krakatoa was, if Yellowstone ever goes, it will be a disaster unlike living history has ever seen. Just something to think about. With that, on <laughs> happier notes, um, let's uh, hear from our two sponsors of the day before we get into the main topic today. Hey guys, have you checked out the TSP Gear Shop lately? We offer awesome t-shirts promoting the Second Amendment, the 299 Days Project, the Sentinel Project, and more. We also offer things you just won't find anywhere else, like custom Kydex sheaths for the Mora number 2 knife. Check it out at tspgear.com. Hey guys, you know what? I love using herbs over conventional medicine for so many reasons, but there's so much hype in the herbal industry, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why I was so excited over seven years ago when I found Western Botanicals, an honest company with great products and wonderful people who really care about their customers. For all your herbal needs, do what I do. And check out westernbotanicals.com. All right, great. With that knocked out, um, let's, let's get into some stuff. I, I want to cover something with you really quick up front. Um, I will be gone next week, all next week. I'm leaving Thursday. Um, there probably won't be a Thursday or Friday show this week and then no shows next week. What I'm thinking about doing, and I'd like to hear from you guys if you'd like me to do this, is simply sitting down and loading up like seven shows that are old shows, not doing any new content on them, but just numbering them different, like um, uh, some kind of, you know something like episode one of Best Of or something like that. Just so you guys, and I'll pick them out for you. I'll put up you know seven shows. You won't have not have any podcasts in your feed, and I'll go way back on some and a little bit back on others, and uh, and just give you some stuff. A lot of times I do. When I'm going away, I build up kind of a, an extra show a day. With the way I produce the shows now, that's very, very difficult to do because I put so much more time and effort into every individual show. So everybody's got to have a vacation, and, and my wife's really earned one, so we're going to go take one. And we're going to an undisclosed location this time, uh, but I will tell you that we'll be surrounded by a wilderness, and I will be happy about that. And uh, I, I don't like leaving... Um, you know, for that many days without having content and material for you. So I may throw some stuff up on YouTube or whatever, but uh, I'm going to uh, to kind of really just take this one as a vacation. So hopefully everybody understands that. But if you'd like me to do like, uh, and if you got, anybody got a creative name for that, like when I do go away, I mean, I've got 1,800 plus episodes. Uh, I could come up with a few and, and run them in like a, a column something different. I'd love to hear, you know, Blast from the Past or something like that. I don't know. I just like to hear that. Next up, I put out a post this morning on the blog that I think some of you might be interested in. Um, as you guys know, when I talk about uh, Bitcoin, I usually say that the best place to start is Coinbase. It's extremely safe. It's extremely easy to use. And anybody that's used, like, let's say, online banking or a PayPal account, it'll make sense to you. It's not some weird wallet app or something. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But a lot of people, especially those of us who are a little older, like, I don't get how this works, right? This is just 
a fantastic way to start with Bitcoin. Well, um, when I did the show about Bitcoin about, I guess, a month, month and a half ago, um, I found that there was a link uh, to Coinbase that I could put up and get a, a credit if, if I referred you guys. So I put that in there, and I've had a few of them trickle in over the you know the last month. And I realized today that I wasn't just getting 10 bucks, that the person setting up the account was getting 10 bucks. So the way it works is when you set up your Coinbase account, it doesn't do nothing for me until you put money in it, right? Because then it's an actual account, right? They can set the account up for free. But when you fund it with at least 100 bucks then the person that does the referring, the link, you know, from my site, I get $10 worth of Bitcoin. But so do you. Now, you don't put 200 in and get 20 It doesn't work that way. It's like, a, you know, a one-time thing. But if you've been thinking about getting started with Bitcoin, you can go to Coinbase.com, set up your account, put 100 bucks in it, and then they'll give you $10 extra. And you go through my link, you'll make sure you get that special offer, and I'll get $10 worth of Bitcoin, too. So there's an article about how that works out there. And there's now a banner on the site for this promotion. And I'll leave it up there as long as the promotion remains active. So I kind of missed that one. And I want to make sure you guys know you can get, you know, basically a 10% return on $100 instantly. And remember, when you set up a Bitcoin account with Coinbase, it's not gone. It's not like you spent money. It's like you put $100 in a you know bank account. Now, it can fluctuate, and it could go down. Uh, but I did the math today, and since I did that show, my Bitcoin and Ether, both in Coinbase, are worth about 10% more. I've made a 10% return on my money there uh, in about 30, 45 days, something like that. So, pff, I mean, it can cut the other way. There's always risk with any investment, but I don't know. It's better than I've been doing in the stock market in the last 45 days. Just saying. All right, with that, let's get into the, uh, the main topic of today's show, and uh, the first... One that I have for you today is about the situation in Spain, which I think Americans are pretty internally focused, and we don't really pay attention to the rest of the world unless the TV tells us to, and a TV would never tell us to pay attention to something like this. story, though, is in the New York Times, and it's uh, here's the headline. Spaniards exhausted by politics warmed to life without a government. And this is from uh, Richard sent me this. Actually, quite a few of you guys sent me uh, different versions of this. So... You can read the article yourself. It's pretty long. I want to give you kind of the short, down-and-dirty version of what's gone For about 290 days now, because the article's... Uh, no, actually, 288 days, because the article is from today. Okay. Uh, for 288 days, Spain has managed to plot along without a federal government, without a central government. You might wonder how that's possible. They would have government shutdowns, all things. Well, Spain's not as stupid as us. They don't pretend to shut down the government by locking old people out of going to a war memorial that they came to see or something like that when there was no need to do it. Uh, what that means is there's no, there's no equivalent to what we'd call our Congress or President. There just isn't. But the basic essential things of government, like people are getting paid, um, there's a budget there to pay civil servants and, you know, things like that. Uh, people, you know, the, the taxes are being collected, et cetera, and, uh, everything's kind of plodding along. And the way that it'll work is if, let's say they come to the end of this, 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 uh, budget cycle and they get into a new fiscal year, it'll just, it's already set up with redundancy where it'll just, well, that's the same budget we get next year. It's just, just everything stays the same. Nothing changes. Nothing goes up. Nothing goes down. It all just stasis. It's the way it works. 
And about the only problems they're having is like major infrastructure uh, allocations and stuff can't happen. So if some road needs to be put in or repaired or something like that, and it's beyond like what the local government takes care of, yeah, that's an issue, but that's about it. And overall, Spaniards seem pretty happy about it. And the way this happened is some countries do have more than one party or more than two parties that are actually one party pretending to be two. And in those those situations there has to be a coalition to form the government with a majority. Somebody has to be able to get at least 50%, 51% on the same page to be able to get the government going. Well, what you have is three or four factions here, and nobody can coalesce a majority. There's no 51%. So it's in like this just like kind of suspended animation. All They're all there, but they don't, they can't do anything. And, You know what? The country seems happy about it. Like, like they're better off without this. Because what, what actually happens now is everything stays the way it is and nothing gets worse. No, no big new laws are passed. No big new taxes. No big anything. Right? And you might say, well, you need government to repeal laws. Well, maybe, but that's not what they do. We get more laws every year. They don't repeal laws. That's not what they're in the business of doing. They're in the business of writing new laws. And I'm sure it's no different in Spain than it is here when it comes to that anyway. But what this actually makes me think of is back in the 70s, there was a doctor's strike in Los Angeles, a doctor's strike. Now, the way this worked is if you were in the middle of a cardiac arrest and you were going to die, then a doctor would operate on you to save your life. But all of the surgeries that were deemed not life, there was no, life was not on the line if the surgery didn't happen. You know, you uh, you uh, were going to have your tonsils out because you had chronic tonsillitis, for instance, or any type of a surgery that would have been considered, well, that's nice, but you're not going to die tomorrow without it. Deaths of the, the, the people in Los Angeles went down during the doctor strike. Went down. Now, it's not to say anything bad about doctors, and I'm sure there are people that, eventually you know needed their surgery and when the strike ended they got it but the immediate belief was well if the doctors are not you know doing doctoring and only only fixing people who are going to die without them we're going to end up with a lot more people dying it didn't happen that way at all that's kind of like this these politicians try to tell us that they're so important they're so necessary well maybe not see this is basically a a partial vacuum that didn't get filled with anything. So what is it? It's anarchy. Now you say, well, everything's still in place, Jack. You said, well, absolutely it is. But it, it doesn't mean that it's... It, well, so here's my point. So if you can remove that layer, how many more layers can you remove before you have any negative consequences? Because like the only negative consequence here, like I've said, is things like roads and infrastructure. Well, that could be very easily automated you know we could just have basically a computer system that analyzes the entire infrastructure of a nation and decides here's the budget here's what it's going to cost this is what gets done first second third fourth and fifth we don't need we don't need congress to do that we don't need congress to do that at all they're not very good at it by the way you know they're more worried about how many jobs it brings to their district than they are about the total needs of the nation's infrastructure So everybody has their own little agenda. That's why they fight over it. 
So that could be fixed very, very, very easily. I mean, I want you to think about this. What, what else do we need our Congress to do? And almost everything you can think of that you could make a plausible case to me would be to take something that they've done away, to get rid of it. To, to, because all that they've done is enrich themselves at our expense, and we know that. Anyway, you can read this article for yourself, but I wanted to read one um, little bit of it to you. No government, no thieves, said Felix Pastor, a language teacher who, like many voters, is fed up with the corruption and scandals that tarnished the two previous governing parties. Mr. Pastor, a wiry, animated 59-year-old, said Spain could last without government until hell freezes over because politicians were in no position to do more harm. Man, that sums it up for me anyway, guys. Anyway, I'll put a link to the full article in the show notes today. Okay, this next one comes from Mike, um, and he says, I need help finding a small plant or shrub, two to three feet max, that is low maintenance, somewhat attractive, produces fruit or something else useful to deal. My wife is extremely slowly coming around to self-sufficiency side after more than a year of working on her. She's replacing the box hedges in the front of our house with a stone planter and wants easily maintained attractive plants to put in them. Can't be too high so she can still see the yard. She agreed to let me try and find something useful to put in there, but said I couldn't take forever. I'm currently in Afghanistan, and the Internet here is quite an ass pain. Um, is there a suggestion for or brilliant ideas you can think of? An email reply would be easiest for me, but if there are others with similar situation, absolutely incorporate if somehow. So not trying to tell you how to do your thing. Please don't take it as such. I know you uh, get this a lot, but what you do truly makes a difference to so many people, myself included. My life has been changed for the better as a direct result of your tutelage. Thank you, brother. Uh, Mike in uh, Bagram Airfield in Afghanistan. Well, Mike, I'm going to send an email to you so you'll get it long probably before you get a chance to hear this. But your answer can be summed up with one word, blueberries. Blueberries are probably the best thing. Um You're going to go to berries right off with this type of a, a, a setup. You're going to be the container. You want it to be two to three foot high. You obviously want a perennial. You want something that looks good. So you could probably come up with some other shrubs or bushes that are berries that would work. But probably the best all-around one is blueberries. Here's why. First of all, it's because you're going to go in a stone planter. You're going to go in a stone planter. And because you're going to go in a stone planter, you're going to have your own opportunity to make a soil mix. So the one thing that makes blueberries difficult for some people is they like acidic soil. So you can go with a nice acidic soil mix for your blueberries, toss in some little drippers on automated watering, and you don't even have to water it. They're going to produce a really great fruit. Most people I know like blueberries. They are an attractive bush. They're kind of small leaf, kind of like a box elder shrub, except they don't go square real well, uh, but they can be easily pruned and maintained to the size that you're looking for. And then in wintertime, when the cold air comes in, they turn like a brilliant red color with the leaves before the leaves fall off and then leaf back out in the summer. So you get blueberries in the spring. You get pretty green plant through most of the year. They have an attractive flower when they flower before they put berries on. You get a nice green, bright green shrub through the rest of the year. Then you get a pretty show at the end. And they're pretty damn hardy. And just about anybody anywhere in the United States can grow blueberries if you'll grow them in containers. So that's going to be my primary um, primary answer for you. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. This next one comes from JD. Um, I get a lot from him. Good stuff, too. And uh, this one is... Kind of ironic, and it, it makes you wonder about all the uh, the the 
slave driver, hard-working stories you hear from teachers about how hard they work. And I know it pisses some of you guys off that are teachers, but, man, I don't know that all of you have this type of a setup, but I know it's getting to be more and more common. Here you go. And this isn't from me. This is from a guy that works on the systems that the teachers are using uh, to, to teach today, if they really are. Comment, government school teachers are using their replacement every day in the form of a computer program that teaches lessons, and they love it. Government schools are becoming more and more automated, from computer-controlled lights, HVAC, and right-on-floor cleaning machines that sweep, scrub, mop, wax in one process, to student lunches that in some places are prepared off-site in gigantic kitchens transported to the schools to be handed out to the students who slide their student ID card through a point-of-sale device to account for a meal that was provided by the government. What's that got to do with automating the teacher? Everything listed above requires much less people to do now than it did 10 years ago and replaced non-teacher jobs. But here's the rub. I maintain the computers and the computer networks in the schools in my county in West Virginia. Every year we add more computer programs to assist the teacher in performing and meeting their government mandate guidelines to teach our students. It's getting to the point where the teacher tells the students to sit down, get their laptops out, The teacher starts a program running on a teach uh, on a teacher computer that shows the shows on the smart board a 70-inch computer monitor the class can see. The program runs, provides the day's lesson while the teacher sits there and provides commentary and answers questions. And the teachers love it. I've been told by so many teachers, I need this, I need that fixed now. I can't teach without it. To that I think to myself, what the hell did you do last year? They have no clue they are using their replacement. The only reason we have a number of teachers in this county we do is they're required by law. It is entirely possible that we could see something along the lines of the college education model, where you have a professor who actually only teaches maybe one class a week, and all the other classes and lab work are overseen by teacher's assistants. And by overseeing, I mean basically they'll start the program and answer the questions the teachers, as the teacher is doing now. With the school system and the largest employer in the county I live in, with unemployment rate is 12%, And that's a government statistics. I believe they're fudging the numbers and showing only half of the true, half or less of the true number. So as you take the largest employer in my county, responsible for 80% of monetary velocity in the entire county, which in itself is a scary statement, cut it by 50% because no longer need the number of teachers that were required last year because of automation. And somebody finally got a clue and changed the law. Things go bad from bad to, oh my God, what the hell were we doing really fast? Jerry in West Virginia. Yeah, and I think it's part of why it won't happen as quickly as it could. Because what do you do when you cut all these people loose? And let me tell you something. To do that job, I've said for a long time, this idea that teachers need college degrees to teach the fifth grade is stupid. And it's stupid on its face. And if you don't think it's stupid on its face, you're a teacher with a college degree that does not, does not want to admit the truth. The truth is a grown-up, responsible adult with a bit of training in how to manage children who got straight A's in sixth grade is qualified to teach the fifth grade. I'm sorry. It's just the truth. Okay? But in this case, the, the person is basically a, day, a daycare worker. They make sure everybody does what they're supposed to do. They're not even teaching. And, gee, I guess everybody's going to get the exact same education because all the computers doing the teaching. Man... You're, you're, it, it, when you start to look at it this way, you start to realize the real deal. The only reason we have the current government school model and that parents tolerate it is it serves as daycare. It serves as a place for the kids to go. But here's this magical thing. Somehow, 
every parent in America figures out how to handle their children three months out of the year. We, we, we act as though we can't deal with this. You, if you can deal with something three months out of the year, you can deal with it 12 months out of the year. And when you start factoring like all the school holidays and everything like that, I think students actually attend school about 180 days a year. That's half. Now, a lot of those are weekday, weekends, right? And most parents are off on weekends. You still get my point. If, if parents can find a way to see to their children's needs, June, July, and August, and I know it's a little bit different in some parts of the country, like here, I, to me, it's still June, July, and August in my head. Because that's how I grew up. But here, kids get out of school in May, and they go back in August, which I think is stupid. It's stupid. God, is it stupid. It's still a gazillion degrees out in August here. Going back after Labor Day just seems to make more sense to me. But what do I know? I'm just a redneck duck farmer. But I'll tell you what this redneck duck farmer does know. The majority of teachers in America today could be replaced with machines very, very quickly if we wanted to. And if you start getting to a point where how are we going to fund this meets up with reality, what do you think is going to happen? Same thing I've been saying is going to happen. A revolution in education. Because some private company is going to really snap to this. And they're going to figure out how to do it within the state monopoly. And they're going to be able to do it very, very affordably. And they're going to be able to do it better. And when they come up with the right model... And the only reason they haven't yet is it's it's, it's harder than you'd think, because you want to do you want to do a homeschooling in a lot of states that's easy. You say I'm homeschooling, piss off state, like that's how it is in Texas. You don't do jack shit to appease the state in Texas. Some states have a lot of oversight with homeschool. Some you do your own thing, you do it your way, and they can piss off. Okay, um, but when you want to do a private school, it's it's a very very different thing. Which is why the, the champion of the, the, the conservatives, Ted Cruz, um, was doing a big disservice by trying to pass a federal law recognizing homeschools as private schools. The, the uh, assertion there was so that you could get certain tax advantages. Yeah, well, there's always the other, whatever comes from government comes with a, with a club attached to it. And the club would be, well, under Department of Education guidelines, then you start having to do certain things that you wouldn't have to do, and the federal government's able to overreach states that are like Texas and say, homeschoolers, mind your own business, do what you want. Okay, So there's a, there's a hurdle here to setting up a place that would be like a school, and it would be 100% automated and drive prices down because you could have employees that are basically just decent people that can be trusted, That's all they need to be. Decent people can be trusted. They can sit at a, you know, sit at a place and keep an eye on things. And to scale the, the, the population down, and I, I'll tell you, you could, you could end up with a system that's very, very slickly run that would monitor for things like bullying and actually just separate kids that bully other kids from the kids that are bullying very, very quickly because with automated, basically virtual reality-based learning is what you're talking about evolving into. You know, All you're really talking about it is making sure the kids learn and making sure that a safe place for the hours of the day that parents need them to be somewhere. I mean, it would seem to me that run properly, you could probably run something like this on a per-student cost at about $500 a month and make money, make a profit. Pay decent employees a decent wage, 
to do a relatively simple job. And if you look at it that way, let's say it's a thousand dollars a month, but instead of and then we we do it for nine months out of the year, nine grand per student. That's still that's still not that high, especially if people have their money back. But they're not going to get their money back. Somebody's got to do it lower than that. Now you can do it online for like fifty bucks a month as a subscription service, and you can provide a world class education way beyond what any of the schools can do. But you got to you got to skin the problem of what do parents do with the kids as the parents start losing jobs. Though again, that's kind of self correcting. It's it's going to be an interesting thing, and I'm going to save some comments on that for our final question of the day. But yes, the teachers are training their own replacements because they're training the children to use the technology that will replace them, and that's that's something I think most people don't get. It's the same thing when the uh, the girl at Panera Bread, you know, says, "Oh, the line's long. Come over here and let me show you how the kiosk works." Since you've never used it before, yeah, you're replacing yourself, honey. I'm sorry, it's the way it is. Um, here's another one on animation from Tom. Tom says, "I wanted to share my recent experience." that I had that relates to Bob Brown discussed in episode 1880. I'm a software engineer, 15 years, and I've worked on many technology companies. You've probably heard of Philips, Intel, NetApp, etc. Outside my day job, I work uh, part-time as a sole software engineer for a small developer, st- small Denver startup building uh, an Internet of Things device. I'm a software engineer of 15 years. I'm sorry. I recently had a come-to-Jesus moment when I realized that I had just accomplished in two weeks what would have taken tens of engineers many months to do just five years ago. I had a simple mobile app deployed for iOS and Android and a cloud service that can scale to millions of users. Thank you, Amazon Web Services. Am I some magical wizard engineer? No. While my years of experience did help accelerate the process, the fact that the tools are now available to automate most of the routine work, this frees me up to focus on core value of the business instead of the problems that have already been solved many times over, server and database, scaling, redundancy, lifecycle management, etc. Our company is rapidly approaching the next phase release of several one, several thousand devices. I thought we might have to hire another engineer or two, but now it's clear that won't be necessary. My part-time work is all that's required. I know it won't stay this way as we grow, but we'll be able to grow bigger for cheaper with current automation. Fortunately, I'm in a good position to ride this change as I started building a resilient lifestyle a couple years ago. I started a side business that led me to this current opportunity. I'm continuing to meet like-minded entrepreneurs that I can work with in the future should my traditional day job ever be in danger. Unfortunately, the vast majority of my colleagues might be blindsided by this evolution. I'm thankful for how this podcast has helped me and many others build better, more resilient life. Thanks for all you do, Tom. You know, that kind of brings me to a point I've been trying to make, and I don't know if I'm getting it through. Um, All the jobs aren't going away. What's going away is the total quantity, and I think maybe another way to look at it that might make it easier for some of you to get is how much you're needed, even if you're needed. How much do I really need you? So let's say you say, well, there's things a computer can't do, and let's just say that you're right. Let's not even have the argument that there's not many things computers can't be made to do, but we'll just say that there is. Fine. Let's say that I now don't need you 40 hours a week. You don't really warrant a full-time job anymore. Um, In fact, not only do I not need you for a full-time job, I don't need the four other guys that do your job, the five people that work here that pretty much all have the same job. I don't need any of you 40 hours a week anymore. I need certain things the five of you did done about 25 hours a week. Okay, 
I'm going to take that into not a part-time employee model. I'm going to take that into a contractor model as an entrepreneur because I'm not an idiot. I know how tax law works and everything else. And I'm going to, I'm going to make, even when you say, well, contractors have to be able to show up when they want to in certain things. Yeah, I know. I'm going to make that work. I'm going to make that a contract position. And I'm going to see the five of you and everybody else that knows how to do what you do is my on-demand workforce. And if you're not available this week, I'm just going to get somebody else. And there's already computer-based recruiting systems that basically I can order somebody to do that job from my I'm an app on my phone. I need a person with this skill set. They have people available. Here's their rate. Boom, I need somebody this week and this week to do this project. I'll take one, and I'll just send you one. Okay, that sounds like opportunity, but it's not full-time opportunity. And and what we're talking about is a willow, winnowing away of these paying jobs. This it's it's not it's not going to be like Krakatoa, <laughs> and it's all at once. It's going to be this this this. It's it's like a snake eating its tail. Very, very slowly eating its tail, but yet the snake is devouring itself. And there's no reason for us to not go down this path. There's no the only reason we can make is well, it'll be it'll cost jobs. So what? So we as humans have to evolve through that. And again, I'm saving my thoughts on that for the uh, final one today. Okay, next question I have is, is from Aaron. Aaron says, "Do you have a recommendation for a source of information on aquaponic and aquaculture fish by growing region?" Details, I'm in zone 8A with a pond. Tilapia may or may not work in my system due to the winters we have, and I want to move away from goldfish since they're messy fish with little food value, but they are hardy as hell. Any suggestions? Koi? Aaron, I, I don't know about koi. I've never really heard of anybody eating koi. They're just basically another type of goldfish. Um, but you, you can. They get very large. They grow fairly quickly, and they are basically carp, which is the most eaten fish on the planet. That said, um, I've lived in a lot of places where I can catch all the carp that I want, Right now, I go down to Joe Pool Lake and catch tons of carp, and you don't see me doing it. So it's not that they're not okay to eat. They're a lot of work to make them good to eat, and uh, they really are. So I, I don't know about Chloe, but here's my thing. If you look around the world where people are engaged with aquaculture, they tend to not go to stores and buy fish out of a tank and then bring those home and grow them. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I think tilapia are a fantastic fish. They are probably the perfect fish for for small scale protein production. They probably there's probably nothing better. And out of all of them, um, the white Nile is probably the fastest growing. But you're right, and there's certain laws too. So, for instance, you say you have a pond, and you live in 8A. It may be very well the case that you putting tilapia in that pond is illegal anyway because some tilapia can survive that biome. In Texas, you can't put tilapia in an in-ground pond. It is illegal. Now, there's people that do it. I know people that do it. And there's not like somebody running around checking every pond looking for it. But it is illegal, and you you know it is a risk if if you go down that route. And you're right. The the reality is in 8A, most times water is going to dip below the magical 55 degree number, and all your tilapia are going to float. Now, let's say you live somewhere where it is legal to put them in a pond. 
Okay, And let's say that it will get to 55 degrees and they will float when it gets to 55 degrees. Okay, um, These fish, when well-fed, will get to a pound and a half or more in about six months. So one of your options for that, if you wanted tilapia, and if it's legal or if you're willing to take the risk, is you get a great big tank like a 75 or 125-gallon fish tank, and you set up a breeder group of tilapia in your tank. And that way you can provide your own fish. And when you get to a part of the year where the water temperature in the pond is high enough, or you know when that's going to be in, in advance of it, you breed your tilapia, you have a second fish tank, and when your tilapia breed, they're mouth breeders, they actually breed in their mouth, you get all the little babies out of mom's mouth, and you can look on YouTube to see how to do that, and you put them in a grow tank. And you grow them until they're a certain size, and that way you can, it's like starting plants early, Right, And then they can go from there into your pond, and you start harvesting them as they come to size. And when you get the magical 55-degree day, you get a really long-handled net, and it's fillet day. There's nothing wrong with them when they start floating at 55 degrees. They've basically been put to sleep with cold, which is when you go fishing, you throw them in a cooler, huh? It's the same thing. You just kind of got to be on it, and it might come at a time you're not real convenient for. So that's that's one way to look at this. But again, legalities, you know, you got you got to look at because there's places where the governments are very state governments are very very concerned about tilapia affecting the ecosystem in the lakes we have several lakes here in texas that have just been overrun with tilapia the interesting thing is it's not a lot of lakes they're all lakes that are in the power generation business that produce hot water as an offside of that and the fish are able to go to where the hot water discharge points are in the winter to overwinter and then kind of the whole lake the rest of the year. And again, it's about 55 degrees. And there are tilapia that can handle water temperatures down to 45 degrees, but only for a very, very short period of time. So what do most people in the world do when it comes to aquaculture? They grow the fish that live where they are. So in North America, we have some pretty great fish when it comes to protein production. They take longer to get there, but we have some pretty hardy fish. Catfish are very hardy. Um, channel catfish probably the best known, and they're a wonderful fish, and you can get them from hatcheries and all, and that's fine. But bullhead catfish are not the mud cats people make them out to be. An animal tastes a lot like what it feeds on and eats. So if you're catching bullhead catfish out of a nasty, skanky ditch, it's going to taste like nasty, skanky fish. A bullhead catfish swimming in good, clean water, being fed a good diet, will produce a very tasty flesh and as long as the, the source the local source you have is just kind of a taste problem a funkiness problem um, as long as it's not like heavy metals or something you know catching or trapping those guys is really easy and you could do that and, and move them in and most places doing that with channel catfish would be again illegal right you'd have to buy them or they need to be of a size that they could be legally kept because they're a game fish most states I know of bullhead catfish they don't care what you do because they breed like Bullhead catfish. Like to say they breed like rabbits is way underselling it. So there's something you have to be careful about, though. You can end up overpopulated with them, but if they're in some type of a pond that's like a concrete pond or something, you're not going to have much of a breeding issue because they have to go into the mud to breed. They make tunnels in the mud to breed. So that could be another option. What about bluegill? Um, bluegill will, you know, if fed well, will get up to about a pound to a pound and a half in about a year, year and a half. So it's a longer cycle than tilapia, but they're an incredibly tasty fish. 
And the reason they tend to be small fish and stunted in farm ponds is because they're overpopulated and nobody's pitching them, you know, 35% protein uh, fish pellets or something. So that's another option. Um, we have had really great success here. We stocked my pond with, with uh, fathead minnows. And the minnow population, unbelievable. Just in one season, the breeding was insane. Well, the channel catfish don't have to be fed that much in that pond because, well, there's five gazillion minnows in there. So, I mean, that's a way to look at it, too. Like, well, what does what lives in native water systems in your area that you can find a legal way or nobody's looking way to grow for yourself, right? I mean, you could always go down to a small pond with a, with a, a little light-action rod, a number 10 bait holder hook, and some earthworms, and catch a couple buckets full of bluegill, they probably have no no uh, limits or no creel uh, no size limits, and probably really liberal if they have any creel limits. I think it, like in Pennsylvania, I remember like there was no size limit to, to the bluegills, but your your over daily daily limit was like fifty. How many of them do you need? And you can go three or four days, and pff, right. So a lot of people get really weird on this, like you shouldn't take wild fish and put them in the Okay, well, you can have a quarantine tank if you're really that worried about it. But when you're starting a new tank or a new pond or a new structure and nothing's in there anyway, well, if it all comes from one place, you know, don't don't get too worried about it. And, gee, that's just how fish get everywhere anyway. So I don't know really a resource to go learn about the fish for your area. I think this is a lot like plants. You just need to figure out, well, what are my temperatures? How can I shore those up if I can in any way? And what lives in that temperature range? It's not, there's not like a magic fish. If there is a magic fish, it is tilapia. But again, you've got to do something to keep them warm. Now, the way we're going to do our tilapia here, we have a greenhouse, and we're insulating the tanks. And with a passive solar greenhouse, we should have no trouble maintaining a water temperature of at least 55 degrees. If we have to, we can heat the greenhouse itself on the coldest nights of the year. I'm in eight zone 8 or zone 7, depending on which way the map was made that year. I'm right on the edge of that. And if I can do it, then you can do it. But a pond is a different animal altogether. So that's really the approach I'd take. Either kind of, if it's legal, to breed your own tilapia, seed them in the spring, harvest them in the fall, keep breeders inside, change your genetics once in a while to keep some genetic diversity, rock on with life, or go with fish that are native to your area. Because There's not a lot of non-native fish that grow to food size that you can easily obtain and put in a pond in North America anyway that, that are you know high food value. I mean, you're looking if you're in the north, you're looking at trout, uh, perch. Not the you know everybody calls perch. Everybody calls sunfish perch in certain parts of the country. Like here in Texas, everything that's a little sunfish of some kind is a perch, like a generic term. I'm talking about like yellow perch um, would be good to look at in the, in the north. Um, bluegill grow a lot slower in colder water. So as I moved up north, I would head to, to trout and what have you. As you move south, um, catfish, bluegills, bass, um, crappie, all of those are, are, are valid options. And you can often find stocking services you can procure fish from. So that's my thoughts on that one. This so next one comes from Jerry. It's kind of cool. And, uh, <laughs> if you, uh, If you go to this website, you'll see how to use it. It's pretty intuitive. It's called what3words.com, what3words.com. And it is um, a site that has taken the whole globe 
broke it up into three meter squares and assigned each one three words. So if you wanted to meet somebody and you wanted to give them GPS coordinates, they're just ridiculous, right? No one, I, I've never heard anybody really get excited about writing, like listening on the phone and writing down GPS coordinates. So of course you give people an address if there is an address, but what if it's, there's no address? Well, with this, you would say something like, and I'll just use the colloquialism for the, the telephone game, right? Purple monkey dishwasher. And they would go purple monkey dishwasher on the map and bam, it goes to that same spot. Well, so you can remember that. You can remember that. I'll give you a, maybe an example here of, uh, of an actual place and what the words are. So if you go to what3words.com and you don't spell out three, it's what the number three words.com and click on explore map and then you give it this three words to find belong income pharmacies belong income pharmacies it will take you to a house in a place called Northampton Pennsylvania that used to be my house many years ago when i when i worked for fluke networks and i lived in pennsylvania for three years with my wife and son that's our house you can see where we lived now that have course has a physical address But imagine a place that doesn't have a physical address. Imagine you wanted to give away somebody that, that secret place to go fishing or something like that, or set up some kind of a meeting that you wanted to be able to, uh, to provide a specific location for. Instead of providing complex GPS coordinates, you could just use those three words. How advantageous is this? I don't know. I don't know. What I do know is, It, it would be practical from a standpoint of talking to somebody on the phone or sending somebody a text message and having something that's got a mnemonic to it. Something like, oh, yeah, okay, I can remember that or that makes sense to me. As opposed to like 109.0999515431775. That's one of them. Here's the other one. I mean, just I, to me, it's kind of cool. It's really kind of cool. Now, what's interesting is I put this on Facebook last week, and somebody said, you know, it's not going to help because you'll never be able to afford it. Some people, I just don't know where the hell you're coming from. Um, they do have, like, API things that where, where, like, developers and whatever that want to use this in their own apps and all can have a, a fee to be able to use it. But to be able to just basically use it or to use the What3Words app is free. I mean, it's... It, all it is is Google Maps with uh, with the the GPS coordinates replaced with what three words with the the words. They just have a giant database of words and just had a computer assign. I'm sure a person didn't go through and like go okay, Q you know sector one. Okay, I'm gonna come up with these words. They, this was all automated and done. Pretty easy. Pretty cool. And uh, just an interesting thing. Um, what three words com. So you can go to your house on the map. And uh, you can see the three words. Now, one thing I want to point out. When you're doing it, the three words show up at the bottom of the screen. The first time I use it, I'm like, where is the words, right? And they're, they're down at the bottom. It's pretty obvious once you see them uh, where they're at. But I don't know. You could give away, uh, you could give somebody information about how to find a fishing spot on a lake using uh, using an app. Just cool thing I thought you guys might want to know about. So I included it in today's show. Now, Uh, next one here comes from Austin, and you know I've I've talked about this thing called civil asset forfeiture a couple of times, where cops pull people over and just take their money, even though they've committed no crime, because they believe that a crime has been committed. And and I'm gonna 
I tell you, I, I got some real kind of snarky feedback on that, saying that that's not the way it works. Okay, here, this is from a law enforcement officer. Here's what he says. Hey, Jack, this is Austin the Leo on civil asset forfeiture. Let, my, let me start by saying I hate it. It is true that we are encouraged to run interdiction on the southbound on I-35 for money. The reason we are encouraged is to, is to that the city and the state each gets a cut of the money. There are entire training classes on how to do this. I personally know one officer who has made the state over a million dollars in his career. The next issue I want to address is the technology issue. I personally know agencies with the ability to seize money off a Visa gift card on a traffic stock because that's how it is being transferred now. I hope this gets on the show and hope you hear your opinion. I have never done this and I never will. Thank you for what you do. You know you caught me at the beginning of my and know you caught me at the beginning of my career. Thank you, Austin. Well, Austin, first of all, thank you for your service because you're one of the good ones. I know that. Any any cop that listens to this show and can tolerate it for more than a week or two is one of the good ones because when I talk about bad officers and what they're doing, you don't get angry and throw your iPod or iPod, your iPhone out the window, right? You keep listening because you know what I'm saying is true. And you know that the fact that there's a whole shitload of cops that don't do it doesn't make it any better that there's a whole bunch that do do it. And that a whole bunch is a whole bunch. It's not like a few bad apples. That nonsense. It's the most nonsensical, insulting statement. Somebody gets, somebody has a family member killed by a piece of shit and you call them a bad apple. That, that's just awful. But on this, um, yeah, um, my, my thoughts are, The, the level of unconstitutionality here is excessive. And, and this is when I get pissed off at cops. I'll tell you why. Because they'll say, well, no, SCOTUS said, and for people that have been under rocks, SCOTUS means Supreme Court of the United States, right? SCOTUS said that, okay, just because the government has said that it's allowed to do something, the Constitution doesn't, says it, doesn't say it's allowed to do, doesn't mean it really is. It just means they can get away with it. Like, it, when you take an oath to the Constitution which is what all law enforcement officers are supposed to do in this country. I would hope that you say to yourself, self, is this action that I've been empowered to take consistent with the oath that I was required to take? And when you say, self, no, the answer is no, it's not consistent, you don't do it. You don't do it. So this is the other defense I got of this. But, Jack, most of the time, likely, probably, I think so, that this happens, they probably are people with drug money. Okay, if they don't have drugs, they're not committing any crime, and setting the precedent that you think it's okay to take their money just because they can't tell you exactly how they got it or what they're doing with it or what have you, do you understand how dangerous that is to start thinking that way? Because how long is it before somebody says to you, where'd you get all this money? Well, I don't drive around with lots of cash. How about in your bank account? I mean, if I can do it to you when you're driving down the street in your car with a, with a gift card or with cash or with anything, why can't I look at your bank account and go, gee, that looks like an awful lot of money? How can you account for all that money? Hmm. Maybe a crime was committed. Let's just take your money until you confess to the crime. And now you have to prove that you didn't commit a crime. Oh, our society has become sick. What, what bothers me most is not 
that it's being done. It's the willingness of the average person to look at it as acceptable and okay, because for the moment, it's not affecting you. It's not affecting you. And you just wonder, has anybody learned anything from history? Really? Because when when the Nazis first started picking up certain groups of people, no one said anything because it wasn't their people. And when it finally became your turn, no one was there to speak up for you. I believe there's an old piece written about that that's, that's damn accurate. Um, and it just seems like it really applies here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look it up. It's uh, Martin Nimoyler, and I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but here's his quotation. First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. If you're going to say that all people are treated equally, then it has to mean something. And if someone has property, and you can't prove that it was obtained through the commission of a crime, then there should be no recourse whatsoever for you to, re to remove that property from them. And if I'm holding property whether it's money or a physical property, no matter what it is, if I'm holding on to it, you should have no ability as government to ask me to justify where it came from. This is what we call innocent till proven guilty. You don't have a crime you're accusing me of, but yet, and this does happen at the banking level. This does happen. The IRS does this sometimes to businesses, even though they can't find anything they did wrong. I've seen stories where they thought somebody was structuring, is what they call it, because they made multiple uh, deposits that were just under $10,000 to avoid the reporting, right? But they, they can, obviously, since they're in the bank account at this point, they can see what happened and what didn't happen. They have no, they're not saying that the money was obtained illegally. The, the money was obtained, taxes aren't due on it yet, So you can't show that any kind of tax evasion was created, but they just grab it and take it, and it's up to you to prove that, you're, that you didn't do something that's not even a crime. And it's almost impossible to get your money back. It's a sickness. It's one of the many things in this country that are a sickness. And again, our people accepting it proves that the sickness has spread to the majority of people in this country. We are a sick society where we think it's okay to take somebody's property away from them. Let's take another one. This one seems like a good idea, but I'm not sure that it is. <clears throat> Darwin from Midwest Missouri here with a way to eliminate those political calls. I about blew a Jack Spirico gasket when my wife and kids were in bed, and I got a political call at 9.45 p.m. If you dial a wrong number, you hear three tones, followed by a recording which says, we're sorry, the number you have dialed is no longer in service. Please check the number and dial again. That message is really two parts. The three tones are actually three DTMF tones for a computer. And the message is for humans. Yes, the telco actually plays the DTMF tone specifically for those robo-dialer computers. And those robo-dialers listen for specific DTMF tones for the express purpose of removing non-working numbers to reduce their costs. Here's the solution. Play the disconnect tone right before your voicemail answering machine greeting. This is exactly what the Telezapper does. In fact, you can use the WAV file 
uh, played on, on Wiki for the Telezapper. There's a link to the Telezapper uh, thing. I'll put it in the show notes. It takes about one to three weeks for your number to re be removed from their databases. You should notice a reduction in calls within a few weeks, depending on how many databases your number is in. This is not a perfect solution, as some companies without sales database will simply dial every number in an area code. But when they call you and hear the disconnect tones, they probably will not call the second time. It does not matter if you have a landline or a VOIP line. Unfortunately, some telemarketers turned off the feature to listen to those for those tones. This was done when the telezapper got popular. However, I think most have turned it back on, and they realized that people who had the telezapper were not likely to turn into a sale. I think your listeners will appreciate this. Love your show. Sorry about the overly long message on SpeakPipe. I'll shorten the future calls, uh, Darren in uh, Missouri. Oh, okay. I think this is cool. I thought about doing it right away, and I thought about, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I could be cut off from the Steeler Nation. What, what do you mean? Okay, so I'm part of this really kind of nerdy thing called the Steeler Nation, right? That's that's Pittsburgh Steeler fans. And the Pittsburgh Steelers, and this is just one instance of where this could be an issue, Pittsburgh Steelers have what I think is the best fan outreach in uh, thing in in the world. You can sign up on their website, and they do things like they have – conference calls with like players and former players and coaches and former coaches. Like I was on a conference call with Bill Cower, who was the coach before Mike Tomlin that took the Steelers to a Super Bowl. And they opened it to the people on the phone to questions. So I got to ask uh, Bill Cower a question. It was pretty cool. And the way this works is when they, they don't send you an email, you, they have your phone number and you'll get a phone call from the Steelers as a, as a robot And it tells you there's going to be a conference call tomorrow. And then if you want to attend, they call you and connect you to the conference call. So if you forget about it, your phone rings. It's, oh, yeah, I want to be on this one. You answer it, and you're joining the conference call. And I was like, well, if I put the telezapper beeps on my, my voicemail, I'll get cut off from that. And I thought, well, that's pretty unique to your geekiness with your attachment to your football team. Most people probably wouldn't care. But then I thought, well, wait a minute. Um... There's times when you get those automated calls and you need to be informed. For instance, he didn't do anything wrong, but somehow one of my son's lease payments on his Nissan didn't get credited or counted right or something like that. And uh, so there's a problem because you, you're late on a payment for a vehicle. Well, this is a problem for me because I co-signed on the vehicle for him as the lead signer, because he had no credit, and it got him an incredible deal on the car, and I was happy to do it, as long as he makes the payments. But if something goes wrong, it affects me. Well, I got an automated call from Nissan Motor Corporation about this, and if I had the telezapper, it may have been the case that I would have not got that information. If I had missed it, it would have hung up, not left me a message, and went on with its way. So I'm just wondering how many especially with this rise in automation, too. How many places are using this type of technology that may be trying to get in touch with you that you do want to hear from? Because it's not, you know, we want to bother you to get you to buy something. It's there's a problem with your account. For instance, credit cards. So we had a credit card number stolen, we believe, from a hacked database from a store, not directly from us, uh, while we were in California. And an automated computer called me, and said, did you do this? And I listened to the charge, and it said, if you did this and this charge belongs to you, press 1. If not, press 2. When I pressed 2, I got connected to an agent who terminated the card immediately, sent us a new one, took care of it, locked it down, uh, did their job. 
But the, even though an agent did the work, the computer did the checkup to see, is this legitimate or not? Now, what happens if I have that tone? Does it then just basically say there's no one here anymore? So I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. I'm really not sure. I, I'm, I'm just not. Anyway, with that, let's get to the uh, last one today. But I'll, I'll put the link in, and you guys can make that call for yourself. I did want to point out the potential gotcha there. Says, uh, hi, Jack. I've been listening to your comments on automation and downsizing of workforces. It's coming, and almost no one is talking about it. People balk at me when I brought it up. If only half of the people are working and the majority are not going to become self-reliant, how will those that can't work support themselves or be supported? Now, this is the worst thing I've ever suggested, but does it give good cause for socialism? I know socialism isn't the answer, but what is your take? Cheers, Sean. Okay, so... Socialism doesn't work. We we know this. Um, but what socialism is, is when we take from one and we give to another, which is kind of how it works now in a way. But we do this on a much grander scale, and the government tries to provide all things. And government money usually comes with stipulations. This is how you will spend your money that you get from your, your socialism. Um, and, and what have you. So... Socialism is more than just the redistribution of property. It's, it's the government meddling in the economy at every level, telling doctors how to do their doctoring, telling insurance companies how to do their insuring. It's not just the simple redistribution of wealth. That is the one we look at most harshly, but the reality is if you're going to have a tax-based system, you're going to have a redistribution of wealth. That's going to happen. The most insidious component of socialism is the social engineering of the society, dictating to people and companies how they'll do business with each other, mandating there are certain things you have to buy even if you don't want it or it doesn't serve you, mandating there are certain people that businesses have to serve that they don't want to serve. That's the biggest problem of socialism, so that's not really applicable to the employment issue. Right? So... What is the solution? I've been saying for a long time, I don't really know. It's not simple. It's not simple. I'd, I'd like to believe we can find some ways to allow people to provide for their basic needs. And I think if we can do that, then a society where people work 20 hours a week works. You know, And that, that might be universal basic income. Now, I'm not an advocate of it at this point because I haven't figured out how to do it without drastic consequences that will be even worse than the job losses, at least over the next 20 years. Because the way everybody wants to do it right now is just by taxing the rich. It's not going to work. It's never going to work. Stop thinking about it that way. It doesn't happen. It's never going to happen. You're not going to close the loopholes or whatever. All you're going to do is drive the big companies out of the nation like has been done so much already. You, you can't. There's not enough money in that type of an economy to make it work at an at a income level that's sufficient to provide for basic needs. To me, here's what basic needs would be for a human being. You can keep a roof over your head. It might not be very much. It might, and I don't mean a house. I mean you can, you can afford a, to rent a room. Okay? Um, you can eat three meals a day. You can cover basic medical expenses. That doesn't mean you can afford a heart transplant. It doesn't mean you can feel, you know, afford Cadillac health insurance or whatever. But you can see to your basic health needs. 
you can provide for basic transportation needs. And that doesn't mean necessarily owning a nice car, but you can have enough money to get yourself around and do the things that you need to do. You can have some means of communication like a phone, internet access. I think that is a need in today's society. And the society we're moving into, it's going to definitely be a need. And it will be in business's best interest that you have all those things. Or they're not going to have anybody to do business with. They're not going to have anybody to buy their shit. So that to me is basic, right? And if they do a universal basic income in some way, and again, under the current economic paradigm, it doesn't work. And it's not going to work. It will be a effing disaster. There has to be some new means to this. So one mean to this could be the government adopts an actual fiat currency. Jack, we already have one. No, we don't. We have a debt-backed currency that's far worse than fiat. They go into a computer-controlled system like a Bitcoin-type thing with maybe a little bit more flexibility on expansionary policy options because as the population grows, you expand to meet, and as it contracts, you contract to meet the needs of the economy. And you then basically push the money into circulation from the government. You accept it as payment for taxes. Now look, I know what you're thinking. This guy's supposed to be an anarchist. I am. I'd like no state, okay? But I'm not I'm not an idiot either, and I know that's not going to happen. So I'm saying if you gave it to me and said, how could you make this work, that's an option I would explore. If I had no other option, that's an option I would explore. And then what you say to people is, this is your UBI. You get this forever. You know, unless we change the whole system again. If anybody gets it, everybody gets it. It's the same for everybody. And Donald Trump gets it. Hillary Clinton gets it. There can't be two people I, I want to go away more than the both of them right now. And yes, they get it too, right? Rich people, poor people, everybody gets it. It's the same for everybody. Now, then you go out and you do as much as you want or as little as you want for everything else. And here's the rub. There is no food stamps. There's no food stamps. No. There is no unemployment compensation. There is no Medicaid. There is no Medicare. There is no Social Security. There's nothing. Now, you have people already trapped in that system in certain age groups. Those people get it until they die. And then it's gone. And there's probably some people that are in like this 50-ish range that are they didn't get UBI for 50 years like everybody else. And they're 10 years out from you know moving into that whole system. So you have to figure out some phase out of that. And you let that system die a deserving death. And you phase into this one. Now, I do not have all the answers. I'm not even saying that would work. I'm saying that's one example of something that with the right tweaking could work. Another option is going completely to the private sector. Is it possible? I don't know how, but would it be possible for someone to create, you know, virtual nations or maybe a league of virtual nations, okay, where you have blockchain technology doing things that are already working on, education, certifications, conflict resolution, what have you, where there is some form of currency that if you're a citizen, you just get a certain amount of it every year. How do you make that economically sustainable? See, a government can do it because money's nothing but an illusion, and governments are the master illusionists. So a true nation, the one thing that they can say is, 
We have these people, and we have these places, and we have these resources. See, the United States can print money not because of the system we have. Without those things, the United States doesn't care what system we have. Nobody would believe the money's worth anything. We have coal, we have oil, we have natural gas, we have oceans along our borders, we have fish, we have agricultural production, etc. And and the problem is, this is where the, the weakness of the virtual nation shows itself. You can be a Kansas wheat farmer, but your wheat is controlled by the United States government and various subsidiaries like the Kansas government and your county government and local ag, all that. They all have a monopoly on the control of that wheat. So you can move a lot of your life into the virtual world, but you can't move your wheat into it yet. So the United States government could do this. They could do this tomorrow if they wanted to. They could just basically change the dollar into a blockchain currency, and they could just issue enough money every year to see to basic needs. That's what they're, and I know people are flipping out right now. I can't believe I'm saying this. That's what they're doing anyway. They just have a lot more bullshit wrapped up into it, and frankly, it's a hell of a lot worse. But they could do it because they can say that guy's wheat is part of our natural, our national resources. They can say that we own all these national parks. They can say, this is how much oil comes out of the ground from our country every year. See, we can't build a coalition just yet in the private sector that says, well, you know, I'm ABC Oil Company, and I bought this land, and therefore that oil's mine, and I'm moving it into the economy of virtual nation ABC, right? They, we can't do that. The government won't allow it. They hate competition. That is probably a better way, but that's Buck Rogers shit, right? That's that's way out there in the future. We got to figure out how we're going to do it now, today. And to me, I think if you can do it without bankrupting the country, it would be a much better way to do things. Imagine, see, this is what you have to figure out. Like, you have a mental resistance to this because it doesn't make sense, which is the same reason most people don't understand the existing system because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't mean it won't work. You can say whatever you want about the Federal Reserve. I hate him as much as you do. In the words of Thomas Jefferson when he was talking about the British, he said something of, I would gladly lay my hand to sink the whole of the British Isles. I would gladly lay my hand to sink the Federal Reserve down to be with King Neptune. But you can say whatever you want. You can feel like I do, but since 1913, they've made a bullshit, fake, phony money system work and grown it into the largest economy and the most productive economy that's ever existed in the world. Because as long as people believe it, it works. And if we could move to a system where any person, let's say 18, you start getting your, your UBI. That's, that's it. You want to have kids? You have to figure out how to support your kids beyond your own UBI. So at 18, you start getting your UBI. With that, you can feed yourself, house yourself, clothe yourself, and have basic communications. It's enough money to do that. And we, we create a system that adjusts it as per thing. Okay? This is not going to create massive rapid inflation because those expenditures are happening anyway. We're just creating a different funnel for that money to come from. That, that, that's not going to create rapid inflation. It just isn't. And then you can do whatever you want. How many kids would say, you know what, I'm not going to college, but I want to learn XYZ? How many young people then would, would, would start taking that, that magical one-year sabbatical where they travel 
all over the place and, and learn and go intern and, and what have you. What would it free people to do? How many people right now, if that was covered for them, and based on the work and their own savings that they already have, if we don't take that away from them, could say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start working part-time. I'm going to get out of the way and let somebody that needs a full-time job have it, and I'm going to start volunteering. We could build a much better society on this model. We absolutely could. Now, am I saying we should do it? No. I'm saying we could do it. Am I saying we're going to do it that way? No. Um, I think it makes far too much sense for, the, for, for our government to do it. You would have to have a government that truly cared more about its people than itself to get this type of thing to work. And it wasn't beholden to the giant corporations. However, you can use your enemy to get what you want done. Your enemy can become your weapon. So a bigger enemy to me than the government is the corporations that use the government. I have no problem with the corporations if they don't have the government. You have to understand the distinction there. Like when I get, you know, on top of ExxonMobil or whatever, people are like, you're supposed to be a capitalist. Okay, fine. But they have the apparatus of government where they can use, the, the company can write laws. There's the problem, that connection. Separation between church and state is great. Separation between corporation and state would be even better. Okay? And I don't think it was something that our, our forefathers really could foresee how bad it would be. So, If we can, if we can convince them, look at all the consumers you'd have. Look, look at the recession-proof economy you'd have. Look, we could free your asses up to automate your brains out to lean out to lay people off, and people would be okay with it. The truck drivers won't get out in front of the semi-rig and stop it with their pickup truck and create, commit road piracy. Because you might still have use for the truck drivers, you just don't need them as often. Maybe they're better for certain things than computers. Maybe there's a coexistence. And I think that's what we kind of have to look at this whole thing is we're going to have to coexist machine and man side by side. And those of you that keep thinking you can just pretend it's another football kick down the road another 50 years, that it's just like always, that everybody always says this, and then new jobs just rain out of heaven. I'm sorry. It's not going to work that way anymore. Um I just saw a video somebody sent me today from Tim O'Reilly, and I'll see if I can find it and put the link in the show notes for you. Um, well, he said, we won't lose all our jobs because we won't be out of a job, of jobs until all our problems are solved. And there's, it doesn't look like our problems are solved now. And there's all these things we have to work on. We have to work on climate change, yawn. We have to work on, you know, rebuilding after wars. We have to, you know, we have wars. That shows us a problem. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It, the, the key with a job is somebody has to be willing to pay you to do it. And somebody has to have the money to pay you to do it. And who has the money to pay you to do it? And will they pay you to do it? Like, okay, great, we should rebuild Syria. Fine. Who's going to pay for it? Where's the money going to come from? Do the people there want you doing it? Because that's what he was pointing out. Look at the Marshall Plan and what we did in Europe and look at the way Syria is today. Yeah, but... Do they want us to come do that? Don't they have a lot of people there with nothing to do? Isn't that something for them to do? Besides, I just saw a machine that lays bricks faster than a whole team of human beings can. If you're going to build a building, it makes more sense to have that machine do it than people. How many people do these jobs and they end up old and broken down from doing them every day? You know, my grandfather was a coal miner. And he was 
the toughest man I ever knew. I remember looking at his arm when I was a little boy and seeing these black marks in his arm and asking him what they were. And he told me how, uh, uh, basically, uh, I can't think of what they call it now, but you basically pile up rock and coal to the side of a main shaft to keep it open. Because there's, there's a little bit of coal mix, and there's a lot of rock and stuff in there, too. And um, one collapsed on him, and he was just buried under rocks. And there were several pieces of coal that were embedded in his arm, and they just decided it was better to leave it in there than try to get it out. You know, I he had a little piece in the back of his left hand of coal, too, like a little round piece, almost like a pearl. I said, why don't you get rid of that one? That looks easy. He said, I like it. But I just remember him being so so broken physically down. And I've known people that do work like bricklayers and stuff like that, and just physically broken down human beings. By the time they're 60, they're 60 and they walk like they're 85 or 95. Is it necessarily a good thing that a man do that? If a machine can do it better, faster, safer, cheaper, why shouldn't we do it? We have to come to a coexistence with this. Who decided that 40 hours was the right number of hours for a person to work every week? Why, why is that the number that's necessary to earn an income that's sufficient to provide your basic needs? Because we decided it was. Because we decided it was. If we would have decided it was 20 hours, people would think you're, you're, you're working double time to work 40. If we decided it was 80, you'd call a 40-hour-a-week guy a slacker. Eight hours a day, five days a week. Who came up with this? Henry Ford? Right? Labor unions? But Why? Because it was in comparison to the way things were. And what did everybody say? Oh my God. If people only work 40 hours a week, who's going to do everything? Well, it was right in the middle of the Industrial Revolution. 2.0. And the machines became so much more efficient, we're lucky we went to a 40-hour week. That's what we did. See, that's what people don't realize. That's what we did to compensate for the massive ramp up and reintroduction of machines in the industrial revolution where one machine could do the job of 20 people or 30 people or 40 people we reduced the number of hours people work and we created this whole new economy a whole new world a service-based economy even though services now can be automated that might be what we have to do again Maybe we have to reevaluate what, what is considered a work week. Maybe the average person works three days a week. You know, maybe the average person works three days a week, six hours a day, 18 hours a week. That's a lot of time to give to something you'd rather not do. Would it be worse if you had more free time? Would you be upset about it? The only reason you want 40 hours a week right now in your job is because of what? A need. You have a financial need. Now, here's the other thing. I had an interesting conversation with somebody on the blog about this because they said that in this environment that all the creativity would stop, all the incentive would stop, what have you. You know, let's say we, let's say we came up with a way to do UBI at $2,500 a month. I think that would provide a pretty decent life for anybody out there right now. That's probably better than we can do, but let's just say we could. Do you think if you gave me $2,500 a month for the rest of my life that I would go, hmm, I think I'm going to quit Survival Podcast, Perma Ethos, and all the other shit that I've done? Really? And I'm small potatoes, guys, when it comes to changing the world. Look at somebody like Steve Jobs. 
change the way we think about technology. Do you think if back in 78, somebody would say, hey, Steve, you know what? Knock off this fruit company bullshit you're doing with these computers. And, and here, look, we'll just give you 2500 bucks a month, and then you just don't have to worry about that anymore. You think Steve would have not built Apple computers? You think Bill Gates would have would have not built Microsoft if somebody gave him $2,500 a month? How many of you, if I just handed you $2,500 a month, would just say, that's it, I'm out, I'm done. I'm going to sit on my ass, I'm going to eat Cheetos. How many Cheetos can I buy for that? Holy shit. Honey, give me a bigger TV and a bigger chair for my fat ass, and I'm going to watch TV and eat Cheetos every day with my $2,500 a month. Most people that are going to do something meaningful are going to do it no matter how much you give them. They're not doing it just for what they can get. Especially if it's only enough to have the basics. How many of you make more than $2,500 a month right now? Some of you are going, I wish I did. A lot of people are going, I make about that. And a lot of you are going, I make way more than that. I mean, if you make $60,000 a year right now, you make five grand a month. Five times twelve, sixty. Pretty simple, right? So how many people you're making $60,000, let us say, at one time in your life you were making thirty? Because that's what it is. $2,500 is about thirty grand. Okay, how many of you were making 30? Why didn't you stop? Was your job easier then? Was it less stressful? Was it less demanding? Could you now, at this point in your life, do it in your sleep, for God's sakes? Why did you try for something more when it was enough to meet your basic needs? Why do I keep creating new companies? Why do I keep springboarding new entrepreneurs? Why do I keep coming up with new initiatives? For money? doesn't hurt, but it's it's more about that's who I am. That's what I am. And the people that are going to do that are going to do it anyway. And the people that aren't going to do it aren't going to turn around and do it because they have to work for a living. They'll push a broom or a mop or something like that. But they're still not going to go out and innovate. They're not going to go out and work 80 hours a week. They're not going to they're not going to start a business that they have to get up at three o'clock in the morning and start in their car. They're not going to do those things. They're never going to do those things. doesn't matter what you do. They're never going to do those things. It's okay. They don't have to. We're not all the same. We don't all have the same DNA. Some people talk about ideas. Some people implement ideas. Some people fail a hundred times and succeed once, but the one succeed is the most important one. If you give people like that, if you gave people like me when I was 19 years old, $2,500 a month for the rest of your life, you pay your basic bills, I wouldn't have done less I would have done more, and I would have gone faster because I would have been able to. I would have said, oh, gee, I don't have to worry about any of this shit? Oh, wow. And I would have put all my time and talent into things that were more beneficial to people. No, I wouldn't have sat on my ass and ate Cheetos. Some people will. They already do that anyway. And we're paying for them. We're paying for them anyway. The, anybody in this country that really wants to do something, at this point still can go do something. Anybody out there can work for a living and do better than living on welfare. Anybody that wants to. Anybody that wants to. That doesn't mean everybody that's there really wants to be there. Some of it's so generational now, some people don't get that they could live any other way. They don't see the op opportunity. They don't see the option. But I wonder what would happen if you had a person that was on welfare and you go, welfare's gone. Food stamps gone. Chip, Medicaid, whatever. Gone, 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 gone. Free Obama phone, gone. Here's this how much money you get every month. There's no more projects. So the people that actually own this house, they decide what it's rents for now. Bye. Like once they went, oh, well, wait a minute. I could still live at least this good. Maybe I can live a little better. 
and now I can go do something and I won't lose this? Before you mentally reject it, realize it may be the only solution that we're ever going to have to get through this time period in history. And understand, this is a completely new idea. It doesn't have to be X, Y, Z. It could be, well, maybe what we provide people is half of what you need to meet your basic needs. Then you have to go out and work for at least half of it, and we still get rid of all the welfare and everything else. Who knows? I don't know. I don't know, but we're going to have to do something. Anyway, with that, if you like today's show and you want to support the work we do, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. Those of you that are existing members but your account has expired uh, or something's gone wrong where you didn't get, you know, your, your renewal didn't go through or whatever, you should have gotten a special email from me making you a special offer to come back. If you didn't get that email for one reason or another or missed it or whatever, Email me, Jack, at the survivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC, returning member, in the subject line. I'll tell you what that special offer is. Anyway, it's always a good time to join. And it's 50 bucks a year. It's 18.3 cents an episode. The discounts you get more than pay for your membership. And military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders, active duty or prior service, all qualify for service discount. Email me, Jack, at the survivalpodcast.com. With TSPC, service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I'll get you the discount code. Everybody else, just click on members at the site and sign up today. Next up, I want to remind you guys another great way that you can... Uh, just be involved with the entire community is by checking out the TSP business directory. Someday just go there and just browse around. I mean, especially as we come up on the holidays here. Today I have a supporting member of the directory called Ninja Prepper. They provide multi-function titanium products focused on function stacking and durability. Check them out in our directory or at ninjaprepper.com. And remember, your business can be listed in the directory for as little as five bucks and you will get mentioned on the show Oh, I don't know. Once every two or three months right now is how that works out. But that's pretty damn cheap. And we have other great packages to get your business listed for up to two to three years. You can check that out at TSP, uh, TSP, TSPbiz.com. So um, my uh, my next one that I have for you today is uh, the, the T-SPAS item of the day. So the other way you can support the show, and I call this the painless way to support the Survival Podcast. You're going to buy something on Amazon anyway. Go to tspaz.com, click a link, go to Amazon, buy your stuff, you support the show. That's so easy, and it doesn't cost you anything. But every day, if you go there, there's also a link you can click to see the items that I review, and the item of the day today is another item from eTech City. I really like eTech City. I had the power failure lights on Friday last week. Today, I have wireless remote control electrical outlet switches. This is a cool little kit. It's 30 bucks. It comes with five plug-in modules and two remote controls. So you can have the remote controls in different locations or in case your dog eats one. Charlie had a really bad problem with eating remote controls when he was a puppy. He's gotten over that, it seems. But uh, I've been through a couple. But one way or another, you've got two remotes. They do the same thing. They're identical. The five little modules are like, you know, number one, number two, number three, number four, number five. The way they work is you plug them into an electrical outlet, and then you plug whatever device you want to run. Let's say a light, because it's easy to understand. And then let's say it's the number one module. You plug it in. You plug your light into that module. And you have your remote control. You hit on on one. It comes on. You hit off. It goes off. Now you can turn the light on and off, you know, from across the room. And, you know, you have five of them. So you'd have to, you could have up to five things in your house that you can turn on and off with a remote control. And I know what you're thinking. Jack, you just talked about sitting on your ass eating Cheetos if they, uh, if they gave you, uh, you know, 2500 bucks a month, this is just another way for Americans to do that. 
You can't even get bothered to get up and turn the light on and off anymore. Because when I was a kid, I remember having to get up and change the TV set. I do too. I, I remember the first time I saw a remote control TV set, I was like, wow. You know, never heard of such a thing. It wasn't just you had to get up and change it. You had a dial that you had to mechanically turn. So, no, you know, and, and now we're actually mad if we have to get up and go get the remote. I, I understand what you're saying. But there's other ways to look at this. So here's an example. I have a light behind my couch. And the way we have it set up, there's like a space back there. And this light's back there because it's a good place for the light to be. That's fine. But that's the, the outlet doesn't have a switch to it. So it's kind of a pain in the ass to turn that light on. You have to kind of like climb across the couch and reach forward, or you have to contort yourself and go behind the couch. With one of these, you can just turn the light on and off. You stick one in there, boom. So you probably have a light somewhere in your house. that It's not, I don't want to get up. It's that it's in an area that's kind of a pain in the ass. So that could be a thing. My, my grandson is a little guy. And the light switches in my bathroom are just just still outside of his reach. So he can't reach them to turn them on and off. Hmm. You know what we hear? I'm scared to go in there in the dark by myself. We have the little power failure lights. That turns the light on for 30 seconds. He gets on the pot, and then the light goes out, and then he's scared. It doesn't really work. So put a little light in there somewhere with a the remote. He can turn it on. Now it's exciting to go to the bathroom by himself. See? You've got to be creative. I shoot videos behind my desk at times, and I have these really big, like, it kind of looks like a giant ball, white ball, diffusers and with lights in them, and I have lights all over the room, and they're all wired to one common place. Well, if I'm sitting here and decide I want to shoot a video, I can just hit a button, lights come on. When I'm done, lights go off. It's expensive to run those lights. They're big, they're bright, they make the room hot. I don't like being hot. Another example. Um, how about Christmas lights? Your Christmas lights outside, you pop these things in a couple places, turn your lights on, turn your lights off. Really easy. I prefer a timer for that, honestly. But you know what I don't want a timer on? My Christmas tree. I like my Christmas tree lit until I go to bed, period. And we have a pre-lit Christmas tree because my wife has some of my weird OCD with Christmas trees and lights. It's disturbing. It's disturbing. It's the only time I've ever seen her like this in my life. She wants to punch a hole in the wall if you can see the wire. Right, like she, she want when we we had a live tree, she wanted to wrap it to where you would have killed the tree. Like the wires cannot show. I always just threw them in there, and then you could hang ornaments from them. This doesn't work for her, so I got a pre-lit artificial tree. The wires are in the tree, and the lights just stick out the way that she wants it. Well, that tree has a switch that you can turn on and off with your foot, but it's underneath the tree. So once you have presents and stuff under there, it's a pain in the ass. Well, you just pop one of these in, tree on, tree off. I have a friend that has a bunch of aquariums set up. He has all the lighting in the aquariums wired to one of these. You can turn the lights on and off on the aquarium. I mean, what if you have a light in a shop building that's kind of at a far end, you know, and instead of a light switch, you can turn it on and off. I mean, there's all types of things. One guy said on Facebook, what he uses his for, he has his uh, wireless network extender plugged into one of these. So when you want to extend the network, you just turn it on. You want to um, turn it off because you don't want to be booming signal, except when you're turning it on for a reason, you just turn it off. You don't have to go over and unplug it or whatever. I think what would be kind of cool is, you know, if you have a wireless router uh, that you occasionally have to reset, you could or, or a modem even, you could plug them both into a single outlet that's, that's powered by one of these with a splitter, right? And then when you need to reboot your computer... Just turn it off, wait a few minutes, turn it back on. You do it from the other room. Reboot your router. Now, I have 
uh, TP-Link router that I have a, an app for called Tether that I can do for my phone. But, I mean, it's kind of a low-tech way to do the same thing, isn't it? Just a lot of things you can do with them. And for $30, bucks, they're, they're pretty cool. I got one last one for you. Some of you guys are like, I call you guys electricity Nazis. You're the ones that when you, when you turn your TV off, you unplug it because of the vampire effect where it's, it's still drawing power and it you know, costs you a dollar a month or whatever. These things draw almost nothing. It's like one-tenth of a watt. That would be about a dime a year in electricity by average rates. So if you just put these wherever those appliances are that you unplug to save a dollar a month, they'll pay for themselves. Because instead of unplugging them and having to get behind stuff and do all that, you just click and off they go. So I try to find you guys cool stuff. I hope that is a cool one for you. And I try to find you cool, affordable, easy-to-use stuff. Anyway, you might want to check these out. E-Tech City Wireless Remote Control Electrical Outlets. They are available at tspaz.com, and you can do all your Amazon shopping through tspaz to help support the work that we do. With that, let's talk about our closing song today. Figured it was just the right time to uh, to go ahead and play. You know, I have these three songs that I love by Rush, and I've played the first two for you, so I'm going to play the last one. And that's Tom Sawyer. Um, today's Tom Sawyer is is just one of my favorite songs, not just by Rush, but of all time. I love the guitar in it. I love the sound in it. I love everything about it. And the funny thing is the guitar solos are actually uh, written by their, I can't think of their guitarist right now, but uh, he said that he, uh, he, uh, he, he just winged it. He just winged it a couple times, and then they made an amalgamation of them, and that became it. And that's just the sign of a great musician to me. What the hell is his name? Uh, Alex. Alex Lifeson, right? Um, I think that's who I, I read the thing, that he just kind of winged it to, to come up with the, uh, the the guitar riffs and all of it. Just a cool song. But I think what I've always loved about this is just the one line. His, 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 not, his mind is not for rent by any god or government. In other words, he makes his own decisions, cho- chooses his own directions. Um, I-, I just love this song, and I-, I wanted to share it with you guys, and uh, we'll go to something a little more low-key tomorrow. With that, hope you enjoyed today's show. It's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I'm sorry.